You're listening to the Historical Bookworm Show. For lovers of history and readers of inspirational fiction, join your hosts, Kylie and Darcy, for author interviews, a pinch of the past, and special bookworm reviews. Hi, this is Kylie Woodley. And Darcy Fournier. Tessa Afshar is the Publishers Weekly best-selling author of biblical and inspirational historical fiction, including Land of Silence, which won an INSPI award and was also voted by the Library Journal as one of the top five Christian fiction titles in 2016. Though so another of her titles, The Harvest of Gold, won a Christie Award in the historical romance category. Tessa was born in the Middle East and lived there for the first 14 years of her life. She then moved to England where she survived boarding school for girls and fell in love with Jane Austen and Charlotte Bronte before moving to the United States permanently. Her conversion to Christianity in her 20s changed the course of her life forever. Tessa holds a Master's of Divinity from Yale, and she served in women and prayer ministries for 20 years before before becoming a full-time writer and speaker. She is a devoted wife, an enthusiastic cook, and mediocre gardener. But that has not cured her from being exceptionally fond of chocolate. <laughs> Tessa Afshar, welcome to the Historical Bookworm Show. Thank you so much. I always have so much fun with you ladies. I love how on your website you welcome readers in a true Middle Eastern style. What would you say is your favorite part of Middle Eastern culture that you still carry with you today? I think it has to do with relationships. At the heart of every Middle Eastern home is the relationships that they have with family, with friends, extended family. and you can be lonely internally, but really externally, your life is always with people. And I think that's something that I've brought with me. I'm, I'm maybe more of an introvert than an extrovert, but I still love building relationships, uh, sort of learning from Ruth, that sense of attachment that she had, learning a healthy attachment to God and to people. And I think some of that comes to me from my Middle Eastern roots. Oh, I love that. Because like you say, even as an introvert, you need those close connections with family and with God, healthy connections. So, Is that part of what inspired you to write historical fiction set in biblical times? You know, your Middle Eastern roots? I don't think that that was part of the reason I write historical fiction. I think for the most part, I just love historical fiction. The past is extraordinarily interesting to me. I did grow up in a very ancient country where history goes back 2,500 years, and you always hear these fascinating stories and you, you can walk through a city and see buildings that have been there for hundreds of years. So I, that may have influenced me, I don't know, but the idea of walking in history through books as a reader always fascinated me. And so as a writer, I naturally landed there. Mm. Absolutely. In your bio, it said when you moved to England, you developed a fondness for Jane Austen and Charlotte Bronte. But if you could have tea with anyone in history, who would it be? That's a funny question because I think that 
I have such a hard time picking favorites. Is anyone else out there like Mm. me where it's hard to pick like what's your favorite color or favorite ice cream? And I feel like for any situation, it could be different. So if you like were to peg me just down to one person, I'd have a really hard time. And obviously, you know, taking Jesus out of the equation because that would be... Mm -hmm. Too easy of an answer. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like when you're in Sunday school and you're six years old and you know 90% of the time when the teacher asks you a question, if you say Jesus, you're right, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So I think, yeah, probably Jane Austen would be an amazing tea guest or... Even maybe someone like Deborah from the Bible or Queen Esther or uh, Ruth. I don't know. There's so many. There's just too many. Can I have a tea party and invite a whole bunch of people? (laughs) Yes, let's have a tea party. The conversation will be incredible. That would be so much more fun. Oh, I love it. I love it. So over the years, I'm sure you've gotten... A ton of life advice, and there are so many people, family and friends, who you know speak into our lives and make a huge difference. But what do you think is a common piece of life advice that you've heard that you disagree with, and why? Wow, that's a really good question. And I'm, I think, I don't think you hear this as often in the church, but certainly in the world where you hear uh, God helps those who help themselves. And I think that's such a uh, almost like counter-Christian thought because the whole concept of Christianity begins with you can't help yourself. Like you are broken, you are sinful, you are enslaved to sin and death, and you cannot help yourself. So the beginning of faith is the knowledge that I cannot help myself and God will help me. So I I think that that concept, and sometimes it sort of wriggles its way into your DNA without you realizing, where you feel like, I have to work hard, I have to uh, produce and be productive. Like, it's based on my achievements. God will bless me if I really achieve a lot and work hard in order to achieve. And I'm, I'm not against working hard I in my own life. God has blessed whenever I try to work hard, but I don't feel like who I am or God's blessing depends on those things. Those are just doors that God opens and says, hey, work here and this is the place where I want to bless and I'm going to meet you here and give you the strength and wisdom for it. But I don't feel like God's waiting for me to do anything or achieve anything before he'll be pleased with me or he'll bless me. I love that. I think you're right that that creeps its way even into the Christian culture. But you make such a good point that it always has to start with God. Like even if we're going to work hard, it has to start with him blessing us and him giving us the strength. It's not like we earn the blessing by working hard first. Yeah. And one thing this move, this huge move has taught me is to like rely on God and wait for his action. Cause I'm, I'm a considerably hard worker. We recently had this big move and so many times I'm like ready to go to work and I can just feel God be like, well, wait a minute, wait, I'm doing something. And I even like, I would just be like, okay, well, I'm going to start this. I'll start something else. Then this will help us get moved. And and then that would just fall apart. And so, 
sometimes having a good work ethic is very important. And the Bible talks about being lazy and that that's not something you want to be. You don't go to the ant, you know, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise is what the Bible says. But Tessa, like you said, God's not waiting for us to start doing something for him to bless us. Yeah. I think we just get that uh, upside down. That's the tricky part is when your heart turns everything upside down and you feel like you are acceptable or lovable or God will only help you Mm. if you start, uh, if you um, earn it by your activity or your accomplishments or your achievements or your hard work. Whereas the beginning is always God loves you where you are. You start with the acknowledgement that you cannot help yourself. And Mm. then from there you go with God. Mm-hmm. So well yeah. said. Now, is there anything interesting that you haven't covered in other interviews that you could share with us? Or is there something God's laid on your heart that you would like to share with your readers? I think I haven't really gone into depth. The, the new book that's coming out is called The Peasant King, and it's set in ancient Persia. I've been writing a few books in that timeline, which I've enjoyed so much because of my own history, obviously. But one thing that has settled very deeply for me as I was researching for that book was just a recognition of how active God has been in history and how opposed his plans have always been and will always be in our personal lives. So the encouragement that came for me was I'm writing about this Persian king in this novel And actually, there are two major, I would say, prophecies from Isaiah and from Jeremiah about this king. In Isaiah, the king is actually named, and Isaiah says, uh, even though, like God is speaking through Isaiah, even though you don't know me, you are my anointed and you are my shepherd. So this is extraordinary in and of itself because this is the only time God calls a Gentile his anointed because the anointed one that is the word that's used for the coming savior that's the Christ word and so it's extraordinary that God speaks to this Gentile in this way but the reason he does is because Isaiah is prophesying about the captivity in Babylon about God's people being captive there for Um, generations and decades. And then he says, this man will come and set them free. He will restore Jerusalem. He will restore the temple, which is all really important. And then later on, Jeremiah says, it's the kings of the Medes who will restore, who will defeat Babylon. So when you put these two prophecies together, number one, this king who is named has to become the king of the Medes. Well, he's not the king of the Medes when you first meet him. He's the king of the Persians. The Persians are like a small people. They pay tribute to the Medes. So he's nowhere near being a king of the Medes. And then the idea that he would actually be able to set the captives free from Babylon is laughable. It's almost like in World War II saying, oh, this guy, someone from the Bahamas are going to help the allies kind of win the war. And I mean, it's not quite that bad, but it's really close where you kind of think, what? Like, that's never going to happen. We need someone the size of the U.S. for this to happen. 
And as I was reading, the Bible says this is going to happen, but the Bible doesn't tell us how it happens. But we have all of these external sources from um, the Greeks who are not interested in what happens to the Jews, not interested in the Lord at all. But the language that they use to, to explain how uh, this king goes from being a minor king to being this powerful king. They keep using the language of miracles. Like, that's extraordinary. So number one, one of the things I learned was that God's plans are going to be opposed. His impossible plans are going to come to pass. And then God says to Cyrus, he says, I will equip you. And he says, I will open the doors of bronze. And the doors of bronze are those doors that cannot be opened. It's not like wood that you can break through. We all have doors of bronze in our lives. We all have these moments where we think, there's no way I can get through that. There's no way I can do this. This is not doable by me. And to see God do exactly that in history, where again and again, he opens these doors of bronze. He equips where there is no equipping. That's been so encouraging to me every time I sit down to do something that feels like I'm not equipped for this. I remember the God who equipped this king for the impossible task. He's still my God. He's still doing that in our lives. And whatever door of bronze I'm facing, the same God who went ahead and opened these doors of bronze in history, he's still opening doors of bronze for our nation. He's still opening doors of bronze for our families and in our personal lives. And that's just so thrilling. See, I didn't know all of the history of Cyrus. Like he appears in the Bible as the conquering king of the Persians. You don't see him as who he was before, as an absolute nobody. But I love how God uses people like that. That is so encouraging. Yeah, I mean, part of the reason I love writing about this part of history is because very few people write about it. It's not illuminated for us. So we don't get to get all the precious nuggets out of this. We see the prophecies and then we see the fulfillment of the prophecies, but we, ha- we have no knowledge of the in-between. And the in-between space, it must have been filled with people who were obedient to God, who walked in His will extraordinarily. And that's what really excites me. Yes, the people who don't get named, but they still followed him. Mm, I love it. Like you and me down the co- coils of history. That's going to be us, you know. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That'll be us. Well, let's go ahead and dive into talking some more about your latest release, The Peasant King. We had you on last year for The Hidden Prince, and so now we have A Peasant King. I'm, I'm loving this theme here. Gemma has always thought of herself as perfectly ordinary until she faces extraordinary circumstances. When her mother, the Persian king's famous senior scribe, is kidnapped, Gemma and her sister must sneak undetected into enemy territory to rescue her. But infiltrating their adversaries' lands proves easier than escaping them. Fleeing through dangerous mountain passes, their survival depends on the skills of a stranger they free from prison, a mysterious prince named Asher. Despite his royal blood, he has had to climb his way out of poverty to forge success from nothing. A manufacturer of some of the best weaponry in the East, Asher has only one goal, to destroy his father. But following his escape from prison, Asher is irresistibly drawn to Gemma, unaware that she guards her own secret. Gemma must convince Asher to give up everything he has worked for, all for the sake of a higher purpose he's not sure he believes in. The fate of the Persian Empire, and possibly the Judean people, hang in the balance, and in the persuasive power of one ordinary woman. 
So a prince living as a peasant and an ordinary girl trying to free her mother. This sounds like a great medieval setup, but this is set in biblical times. So do any famous Bible figures appear in this story? Yeah, you do meet Daniel again, who has been sort of the the linchpin, the, the faith linchpin of this series. And um, also you, some of the uh, people that you meet there are historical and in, in sort of in the Bible as well. Basically, though, the main two characters are fictional, so I could play with them a little bit more, Gemma and Asher. And what I um, kind of, the thing that connects them is they have had very different upbringings. Jemma's had a very stable, loving family life. And yet there is still, you know, when you are a parent, you realize at some point, and I'm not a parent, but I can can see from just observation, doesn't matter how good you are, how protective you are, how gifted you are as a parent, how committed you are. There's no way you can control everything in your child's life. At some point, your children may be hurt, and that's what's happened to Gemma. So the ghosts of that event are still haunting her. For Asher, it's a very different background. He's He never had a father. His mother was a slave, and so he had a very insecure upbringing. He, he had no control in his life. He couldn't protect his mom. And so now his life is all about forging security, forging control. And so his he has ghosts from his past that are kind of controlling his decisions. And the two of them have to come to a place where they little by little are able to come out of the power of these ghosts and recognize and find the God who rescues their destiny from the ghosts of their past. And I can imagine with Asher, like not being able to protect his mother, how much more he's needing to protect Gemma and her sister. He is a very protective person. But again, those protections have kind of been bent because of his hurt in a very different way from Gemma. Gemma Gemma comes to her faith much more naturally, having grown up with it and having seen so much good through it. So she can cling to God as as a young person through this adventure, she learns to cling to God in a much deeper way than she ever has because she can't just lean on her parents' faith anymore. But uh, for Asher, it's a new thing. It's this this whole relationship with God, this whole trusting his all his whole future, his fortune, his everything that he's worked so hard, all the control he's clung to, just. Throwing at the feet of God, that's much that's a much harder decision. But the the world in a way, uh, Persia and the future of God's people depend on Asher's decision. That sounds so cool. And uh, and what a good match for Asher, uh, a girl who's who has tested her faith at least to some extent, or you know, watched her parents test it. So she has that strong foundation. So she'll be a good match to help him. Yeah, I think that Gemma's issue as she go as she starts this journey, and this is sort of a very plot driven book. Most of 
my books are a lot more character focused, but this is plot driven because it's the plot that's sort of revealing the action of God. But for Gemma, the the big issue is she's ordinary in a very extraordinary family. Like all the members of her family are just super good at something, super gifted. Whereas she's kind of, she sees herself as ordinary. But her great gifting that she's never noticed is is that she's really able to love. Like we were talking earlier on about healthy attachment and the ability to uh, come alongside people and just support them with her love. Like that's who Gemma is. And I wanted to put the focus of her gifting on that because I think we live in a world where particularly our young people, the gifts that we really lean into is just how smart are you or how beautiful or how athletic, how you're able to do certain jobs or how clever you are and how accomplished you are, you know, all those things. And those are good. God can use those things. But I think that the gifts of the kingdom that we don't talk about as much, that we don't put our weight on as much, how to be able to love, how to be able to attach appropriately, how to be content, how to um, cling to your joy, how to bring joy and peace every time you enter a space. You know, those are the real gifts that I think God wants us to develop and lean on. And that's these quiet, slightly unnoticed things that make people extraordinary and and are such gifts from God. Mm, love that. Thank you. Yeah, that's 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 sort of the message that I wanted to, because I thought if ever like their parents who have teens that they sometimes um, moms and daughters or moms and sons or dads and uh, sons kind of like to read books together. I, I wanted them to have a conversation moment that was really helpful and meaningful for them. While at the same time, if you have, you know, a teen reading the book, I wanted enough adventure that the teen would be like, what? Like, don't disturb me. I'm reading kind of a exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's great that you had like the forethought to include things that spark conversations and speaking of things that are, you know, interesting. And did you learn anything surprising about ancient weaponry and warfare while researching uh, Asher's trade? Yeah, I mean, everything about ancient warfare is surprising to me. Like one of the things that I learned was that when they were at war, the war wouldn't continuously go on. Like in modern times, when nations are at war, it just keeps going and going until it stops. But back then, war had seasons because of weather. So the, the, once the snows would come, the passes would get blocked, nobody could fight anymore. Their animals would all kind of die on both sides if they didn't take care of them. So there was a, there was a campaign season. And then everybody went home. And then they would start again. So even though they were at war for a couple of years, they were only at war during the campaign seasons. And then the men would get to go home and the animals would get to get take a break, you know, all of that. So that was interesting to me. Oh, that is interesting. We don't necessarily think of it when you explain. It's like, oh, of course that makes sense. But it's a totally different concept of how to approach war. Yeah, like people's livelihood relying on your livestock and the crops and different things like that and and just needing to get through the winter. I mean, they didn't have modern day amenities for staying warm and out of the elements and whatnot. So yeah, that's interesting. 
this is why historical fiction is so cool. Yes. Yeah, I totally agree, Darcy. And Kylie mentioned something that's key, which is that even though in this period they were beginning to build standing armies, most of the forces in the army were people who had day jobs. So, you know, they were jewelers and bricklayers and um, well diggers and things like that who then during war, they would leave behind their job, all the farmers and all of those people that you need, they would get together and come into the army. So the, the, their jobs wouldn't get done. And so a lot of the women had to take up those jobs. They had to do the work that like the work of the farming and building and all the stuff that wasn't getting done while the men were away, which we've seen in modern times as well, but it was much more intense back then. They were literally keeping their society from falling apart while the men were away at war. Exactly, exactly. That's where my thoughts were going as a wife and mother. And actually my husband's away right now is like, wow. Like, could you imagine having to take over, you know, take over your husband's business and make sure that all of the duties are, are, are carried out. And also I'm like, well, in order for her to do that, like they would have been preparing. She would have been working, learning the trade or, or learning what she needed to, to be able to do that. So just thinking about the spouse, like, you know, shoulder to shoulder working. We have some ideas, I think, in our modern times where <laughs> we think that women have been locked in kitchens, you know, for thousands of years. But um, so it's just really interesting to see some uh, some historical facts here that uh, say something else. Yeah, absolutely. I think the women of Persia, especially in this part of their history, are very active. They have a lot of freedom, and they there's a very famous story that's in this book where the men are losing, and the women put on their husband's leather pants, and they go into the field and they say, "Are you losing heart? You can't you can't fight anymore. That's okay. We'll fight for you. Let them say that the women of Persia won the won the battle. So they they sort of put heart into their men by by saying that. But mm -hmm. they were extraordinary women, and uh, you see this for several generations after this. The Greeks are really horrified by the Persian court as as the Persian Empire develops. They're always complaining that the the kings are effeminate because they allow women to speak and they allow women in public and they um, have a say in politics. You know, they say, how can a man allow that? So it's really <laughs> actually very ironic in a sad way when you think because um, modern Iran is ancient Persia. Mm. And when you see how things have flipped, it's a sad irony. I love telling this these stories and reminding people uh, because I, I think it's it's just sort of to say, this is where you come from. This is who we mm -hmm. are. This is, history teaches us so much. Things can flip on their head. You have to be very careful. Like just because you have freedom now, it doesn't mean you will, you have to guard your freedoms. Yeah, yeah. Well, what is next for you with your writing? I am working with uh, Bethany Fiction. This is new for me. And like... Kylie, you were talking about moving and all of that, which comes all the excitement, but also a little bit of stress. So for me, this is the first time working 
with Bethany and I love them. It's such a wonderful place, but it's a move. So, and I have, I'm writing three books. I'm staying in the Persian era, but I will tell you, hopefully the next time we're together, I will tell you what it's about right now. We're focusing on the peasant King, which comes out in November. Yeah. It's, I'm so, so thrilled. (laughs) How exciting. I'm, oh, I'm so thrilled for you. Thank you. Thank you. And for our listeners, Tessa is offering a copy of The Peasant King. To enter this giveaway, you can go to our website, historicalbookroom.com. You can also find a direct link to the giveaway in the show notes for this episode. And Tessa, where can our listeners learn more about you? TessaAfshar.com is a great place to stop and learn about me, or you can come to my Facebook uh, author page. Uh, There's always uh, fun things going on and devotionals and things like that there as well. Well, thank you so much. It has been an absolute joy discussing this new book with you. Thank you so much, Darcy and Kylie. I always love being with you. You guys are a joy and a just um, treasure to be with. Thank you. You've been listening to the Historical Bookworm Show, where history meets fiction. For more information, find us at historicalbookworm.com.